Okay, if you brought your Bible today and you enjoy making marks in your Bible or studying your Bible, I'm thinking you're really going to dig the message today because it's much more going to resemble a Bible study uh, than a sermon or a message. Uh, We're going to talk about something that is incredibly relevant in our modern American culture. We're going to talk about grace. Church, hear me when I say political correctness is a poor, lousy substitute for grace. I hope to show you that today. I want you to consider something as we begin, and that is how often when we discuss matters of faith or we talk about spirituality or the faith walk, we talk about who's connected with God and maybe who isn't, I want you to consider how often the terms good person and bad person somehow work their way into the conversation. I want you to think about how often when we discuss in this arena or another matters of faith, connecting with God, walking by faith, the Christian life, how often the terms good person and bad person work their way into the conversation. We say things like, I'm trying to be a much better person now that I'm following Jesus Christ. Or, I'm hoping to become a good person and then I want to be baptized and get more involved in the church. We use that terminology to compare ourselves to other people. We see people on the television news or the TV in general and we feel superior to them. We assume that we're good people and they're not. In Washington, politicians on one side of the aisle or another point to the red states or the blue states as good or bad people. We say things like, nobody's perfect. I mean, I'm no Mother Teresa, but I'm certainly a better person than he is or than she is. And again, we feel superior to other people based on some ambiguous moral standard of good or bad. Now, what if I told you that if that's part of your understanding of the faith walk, that you need to rethink your theology? What if I told you that if that's still how you look at the world and other people, that you've missed the point of God's written revelation? What if I told you that if you're still wrapped up in who's good or who's better or who's the best among us, that you don't know grace? You see, in a world of grace, it's never about good or better. In a world of grace, it's never about good people and bad people. Today's week number five in our series of messages we titled Rock Solid. We launched this series several weeks ago because we wanted to revisit the major themes of the faith walk. We've talked about faith and church and worship and prayer and today we're going to talk about grace. Because hear me church, if you don't know grace, you don't know Jack. Remember when we used to say that? I found myself as I typed those words saying, I'm going to date myself again. But it's true. If you don't know grace, if you can't comprehend grace, and you don't know Jack, it's been said that Christianity is supremely a religion of grace. Christianity is all about grace. In fact, grace is a distinguishing mark that separates Christianity from every other world religion. 
Grace separates the Christian from the Muslim. Grace separates the Christian from the Hindu. Grace separates the Christian from the humanist. You see, while other world religions tend to focus on self and self's accomplishments and self's improvements and self's contribution, Christianity's central focus is grace. They point to what they have done, what they've managed to accomplish, how they've become better people. While we point to what God has done and his grace. We use the word quite often in our culture, in our society, but I'm not so sure we truly understand its root meaning or the depth of its sacrifice. So let's begin there. What does grace mean to me? What does grace mean to you? When I was a little boy in Sunday school, my teacher taught me grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. Thankfully, eventually, I grew out of that elementary understanding of the word using passages that we're going to examine today. But I'm asking you, what does grace mean to you? Listen, you can look long and hard at philosophy, man's attempt to figure out life, meaning, and purpose. You can look long and hard at other world religions and never, ever find a better explanation to the process of life that we're all involved in and what man truly needs. What does grace mean to you? Ask yourself the following. Why are there so many good and beautiful things in life? Why are there so many beautiful things about living a sunrise? The beach at sunset? The birth of a baby? Now, I ask you that question because there are those skeptical, perhaps even among us, who assume because evil exists and bad things are out there and bad things happen to good people, because there is darkness in our world, then God cannot exist. Or if God does exist, he cannot be all-powerful, nor can he be all-good. Well, I'd like to just turn that back on you and say, if that is true, then how do you explain the goodness in life, the beauty in life? What do we need? Here's another question. Where did my pride come from? Where did that intense desire within me to be right, where did that originate? Why is it that even when I'm presented with mounting evidence, do I hunker down, bow up, and try to prove myself right? Why do I choose wrong over right so often? Why is it so easy to act poorly in a tight, difficult circumstance than to act properly? Why is that? What do I need? Here's another question. Why am I driven to find the loopholes in God's law? What is it about my nature that wants to know where's the line drawn? Why? So I can get as close to the line as possible without going over. Because after all, I consider myself basically a good person, right? Don't you? What is it in me that wants to know the boundary 
so that I can get just as close as possible without stepping over. I am searching actively and subconsciously to find the loopholes in God's law. What is that about me? Here's a big question. Why did a carpenter's son from Galilee of all places change the world? I mean, he wasn't a king. He never wrote a book. He was a carpenter's son from Galilee. And why did tens of thousands flock to him? Why did he literally change the world? Listen, church, grace is the key element in answering each one of those questions. Grace. So let's talk about it for a moment. Grace, G-R-A-C-E. The word is thrown around casually in our culture. We say grace before we eat a meal. We're grateful for someone's kindness. We're gratified, same word, by good news. We're congratulated when we're successful. We're gracious when we're hosting others. When someone's service at a restaurant pleases us, we leave a gratuity, same word. A composer of a score of music might add grace notes to make the music more full. A judge may issue an act of grace to pardon a criminal. We refer to the Queen of England as your grace. When your magazine subscription runs out, but they keep sending them to you anyway, hoping you'll reinstate it. Those are called grace issues. We use the word all the time. But how much do we really understand and know about the concept? Further, would we know anything about it? Would we understand it at all without God's most awesome act of grace? Many years ago, a man by the name of Philip Yancey, a minister like me, wrote a book. It was entitled, What's So Amazing About Grace? It's an old book, but it is fascinating. It will challenge your grace paradigm. I challenge you to read it. In it, he describes a meeting he had with a prostitute in his office. He writes, and I'm reading, a prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me that she had been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more money renting out her daughter for one hour than she could earn on her own in a whole night. She had to do it, she said. To support her own drug habit, I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. At last, I asked her if she had ever thought of going to the church for help. I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They'd just make me feel worse. Church, let me ask you a question. If that woman walked through those back doors and sat down next to you and you knew her story, how welcome would you make her feel? That lady wouldn't respond to God's grace. It seemed inconceivable that she could. That causes me to consider, why do people refuse to respond to God's grace? Why would someone ever give up 
on God's grace. You see, grace teaches us that God would do for someone else what we would never do for someone else. Because all of us have some sort of arbitrary boundary out there. And we like to help people who are not that bad, right? We like to help people who we think deserve our help. But if they've crossed that arbitrary boundary, that's it. I'm done with you. Find help elsewhere because you've crossed a line. You're too bad. You know what this book teaches? This book teaches that grace is specifically for that person. And by the way, this may shock you. You are in just the same need of God's grace as a woman like the one in the story. You see, God's grace is different. His grace specializes in reaching really bad people, people we would ignore. Prostitutes like the one described in Yancey's book. They would have flocked to Jesus, by the way, and many did. And the striking difference between God's grace and ours, I think, reveals the two reasons people don't respond. Reason number one is, I'm too good, I don't need it. I don't need God's grace. Oh, we would never say that out loud. But that's the way we function in our faith walk. That's the way we live. We responded to the grace of God. We responded by faith, authentic faith, to the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then it's as if we look at God and say, okay, thank you, I'll take it from here. I'll start building my own righteousness, thank you very much, because I'm too good to need that kind of grace. That's why people who've been at the faith walk for a very long time, you stand back and watch them, they're still racked with guilt. A failure to them, moral or otherwise, is an enormous deal. They can't get over it because they can't forgive themselves. They thought that responding by faith to God's grace demonstrated by Christ took care of everything in the past, but now they're responsible for everything in the future. Some don't respond because they are too good. Others don't respond like the woman in the story because they don't feel worthy. Human shame is a powerful instrument in the hand of the church, sadly. Religious people have become powerfully effective in heaping on the shame. We have convinced others that if we can't forgive you, then God can't either. Look, let me help those of you who may struggle to understand this book by boiling it down to what I'm going to call a biblical cliff note. Do you know what this book is about? Here's what this book teaches. Regardless of where you're reading, Old Testament or New, here's what this book is attempting to communicate. Mankind is flawed. We're broken. The Bible calls it sinful and incapable of uniting with the Creator on His own. Mankind is flawed. You get that message from Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and throughout the poetic books, and throughout the major and minor prophets, and on into the New Testament. Mankind is flawed and incapable of uniting with his creator on his own. When you read your Bible, that's the message God wants you to get. This book is not about who's good and who's not. That's not what this book is about. Not about good behavior, better behavior, or the best behavior among us. God wants you to understand that throughout history... He has been working to reunite himself 
with his creation. And many people say they understand that. Oh, Mike, I totally get that. Again, that's why I responded by faith to God's grace. But that's not good enough for them. They have to keep it going. They have to add something to it. Since coming to faith in Christ, they've been trying to add to that righteousness. They've been trying to make themselves more righteous by turning the Creator's revelation into nothing more than a rule book. We use this book to make ourselves feel superior to others. You know the type. A follower of Jesus who's turned this revelation, God's inspired, authoritative, protected, inerrant in its original autographs. They turn this book into nothing more than a rule book. They've got a rule for everything. They've got a rule for marriage. They've got a rule for money. They've got a rule for the words that come out of your mouth. They've got a rule for your time. They've got a rule for your behavior. They've got a rule for your family. They've turned the revelation of God into a rule book. And then they use it to feel superior to others who don't live by their rules. God's message is very simple. I'm a sinner. I'm flawed. I'm broken. Christ is my righteousness. If I am righteous in the eyes of God, it is only because of Jesus Christ. I have none of my own. So therefore, any effort on my part toward righteousness is not more righteousness. It's worship. You follow? Anytime I attempt to alter behavior, to change from what I perceive as bad to good, that's not making me more righteous. Jesus already did that. That's worship. Now, there are two extremes in your Bible of self-sovereignty. And I talk about self-sovereignty all the time. Self-sovereignty is what separates us from God in the first place. Apathy is one. I talk about that one all the time. I don't care what you think is right or wrong. I am the measure of morality in my life. Don't judge me. I decide what's right or wrong. That's apathy. Apathy toward the principles of God. But then there's another kind of self-sovereignty that we don't address very often, and that's called legalism. A legalist believes he or she can create their own righteousness. The Pharisees were legalists. Remember, if self-sovereignty is what separates us from God, God's revelation addresses both extremes, both apathy and the legalism. Remember, Jesus instructed sinners to repent, but he saved his most fiery confrontations for the most religious people among them, the Pharisees, the rule keepers. Remember this, church. Don't ever forget this. Rule breakers flocked to Jesus. They loved him. Rule keepers executed him. Did you hear that? Rule breakers like Mary Magdalene, like Matthew the tax collector, like Peter the disciple, rule breakers, they ran to Jesus. The rule keepers, they're the ones who executed him. Let's look at this from Romans chapter 5 first. We're going to be in Romans 5, back to Matthew 5, wind up in Galatians 5, and then I'll wrap it up. Look at verse 20 of Romans chapter 5. The law... 
It's the Old Testament law. Started with 10 commandments and grew from there. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Say what? I thought the law was given to man so man could feel more righteous by keeping more rules. Not according to Paul. The reason for the law, according to the Apostle Paul, is so that you might recognize your unrighteousness. Later in chapter 7, Paul says as much as this. You know, until they put those speed limit signs next to the road on I-16, I had no idea I was a speeder. Until the sign read, speed limit 70, I had no idea that I had a heavy foot. Paul says, the law was introduced to increase the trespass, to help you recognize your unrighteousness. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Not your desire to turn over a new leaf, not your desire to become a better person. No, God's grace is the only thing capable of overpowering your unrighteousness, according to Paul. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more, verse 21. So that just as sin reigned in death since the day of Adam, Romans chapter 5, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring about eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. See, by God's grace, I'm righteous, plus nothing and minus nothing. The only thing I have to celebrate is God's grace, because I did not contribute one iota to my righteous standing before God. Paul said the same thing two chapters earlier. Look at chapter 3 and verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21, but now apart from the law, again, 10 commandments that morphed into 613 in the days of Jesus, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Wait a minute. Jesus is the one who made it known, and it's consistent with the law and the prophets. And by the way, to the rule keepers, to the Pharisees, the law and the prophets was everything, everything. You didn't have anything bad to say about the law and the prophets because the law and the prophets make us righteous. Not according to Paul. Again, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known through Jesus to which the law and the prophets testify. That's what the Pharisees, the rule keepers, never got. They never understood that their precious law and the prophets, the Old Testament, was pointing forward to the fulfillment of that law, which was Jesus Christ. They never understood that. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Watch this. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Well, now, wait just a minute. There has to be a difference between the keepers of the law and the rule keepers, the Jews, and the Gentiles who've never even been exposed to the rules. There has to be a difference, not according to Paul. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came from Jesus Christ. If I am righteous, it has nothing to do with me. Now, back to chapter 6. Watch this. Chapter 6 and verse 1. 
In light of all of that, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? I mean, come on, Mike, it sounds like that's what you're saying. If grace is the star of the show and I can't make myself any more righteous by my behavior, by keeping more rules, then why can't I just live the way I want to live, do what I want to live, or do what I want to do, and then applaud God's grace? By no means. Your translation might read, absolutely not. The original Greek reads, heck no. Can't do it. Can't look at it like that. We are those who have died to sin. You realize that's what baptism represents. I died to sin. My intention has changed. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, or in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Remember, any effort on my part toward righteousness is not more righteousness, it's worship. That's the new life that Paul describes. So, let me summarize. Apathy is one extreme of self-sovereignty. And according to Paul, it's totally unacceptable. Now, turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Go to Matthew chapter 5 in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to begin reading in verse 3. For those of you who like to study your Bible, right next to chapter 5 and verse 1, you need to write in the margin, to the Pharisee first. To the Pharisee first. If as you read the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5, 6, and 7, you will remember that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisee first, who, by the way, because of the rules they kept, considered themselves to be righteous, then the Sermon on the Mount will come alive to you. If you stop and fail to realize that Jesus was addressing the Pharisees first, the Sermon on the Mount might become confusing to you. I hope to clear that up in just a second, or at least some of it. Look at verse 3. He begins the part we call the Beatitudes at the very beginning of the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, blessed are people who are poor in spirit. They're humble before God. They're the ones going to heaven. Now, follow me here. The Pharisees, the religious supermen of the day, were anything but poor in spirit. They were vain and proud because they were self-made in their righteousness. Do you know what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes? He's contrasting their supposed superficial righteousness with his own. Jesus is trying in the Sermon on the Mount to convince religious supermen whose job it was to keep the rules, he's trying to convince them you're not nearly as righteous as you think you are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they're the ones going to heaven. Then he talks about blessed are the, those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Jesus is describing himself, not the Pharisees, and that's going to come through loud and clear. Skip down to verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. The Pharisees said, good. Because the law and the prophets were everything to the Pharisees. Do you know what everybody else probably thought? Darn. 
I was sure hoping you were going to do away with those 613 some odd commandments because I can't keep all of those rules. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Verse 18, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Skip down to verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, come on. Whose righteousness could surpass the righteousness demonstrated by professional righteous people? Nobody in that day doubted the righteousness of the Pharisees. Jesus did. Nobody questioned the authority because of their self-made righteousness of the Pharisees until Jesus did. That's why Jesus in the next section, begins to point out their unrighteousness. In verse 21, for instance, he contrasts anger with murder. And Jesus said, you may not have committed murder, but if you have hatred in your heart, you're just as unrighteous before God. Now, come on. Are we? Very well-meaning followers of Jesus Christ who love to turn God's revelation into a rule book and nothing more, turn verse 21 into a rule. See, I told you, you can't hate somebody because if you hate somebody, you are just as guilty as murder. It's just the same as taking their life. Is it really? No, it's not. That's not the point. The point is, Jesus wants self-righteous Pharisees to understand they're not nearly as righteous as they thought they were. Verse 27 talks about lust and compares it to adultery. In verse 27, Jesus says, You may never have committed adultery, but if you've looked on another woman who's not your wife with lust in your heart, you're just as unrighteous before God. The Pharisees were proud in the fact that they had never committed adultery. Jesus said, you're not as righteous as you think you are. Because if you've looked at another woman who's not your wife with lust in your heart, you're just as guilty before God. Now, I ask you. Again, some well-meaning followers of Jesus, they turn verse 27 into a rule. Well, now we can't look at a pretty woman. Can't do it. Verse 27, that's what it says. That's not what it says. What it says is, Pharisees, you're not nearly as righteous as you think you are. Trust me, church. If you don't think there's a difference between looking at a pretty woman inappropriately and sleeping with her, I'd like to have a conversation with you. They are not the same, right? Jesus is not trying to make them the same. Jesus is trying to convince self-righteous people they're not nearly as righteous as they thought they were. Verse 30. 31, he talks about divorce. He says, you guys squeak through the only loophole that Moses gave you in the Old Testament law about divorce. You twist the facts and turn it around so that you can do what you want with your wife who has no power in this culture. I'm telling you, anybody who's been divorced commits adultery. You're just as unrighteous before God. Again and again, he makes the same point. In the Sermon on the Mount... 
Jesus is contrasting God's righteousness with the righteousness that's portrayed by religious people or the Pharisees. So that at the end of the sermon, the people are supposed to say, now wait a minute, Jesus, if I'm hearing you right, that means nobody's righteous, not even the Pharisees. To which Jesus would have said, bam, exactly, absolutely, that's the point I've been trying to make for the last 30 minutes. Now, in summary, legalism is another extreme of self-sovereignty. And it's totally unacceptable. On the one hand, apathy, unacceptable. On the other, legalism, unacceptable. One last passage, and I will quit. Galatians chapter 5. Go to Galatians 5, which follows 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then comes Galatians. Go to chapter 5 and verse 1. Paul is the author again. He writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's for freedom's sake. Jesus delivered us from Adam's curse that the law only increased, Romans 5 and 6. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's not about good. It's not about bad. It's not about better. It's not about behavior. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Listen, church, we burden ourselves unnecessarily when we try to add to our righteousness. That is legalism. It's not freedom. Mark my words, verse 2, very strong in the original language. Mark my words, Paul says. I, Paul, tell you that if you allow yourselves to be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. In their culture, circumcision was the adopted behavior that demonstrated righteousness. Paul says it shouldn't. Obviously, that's not a big deal to us. No one considers themselves a good person because they've been circumcised. That's just not on our resume, right? But in their culture, they did. Jews looked at uncircumcised Gentiles and said, you're unrighteous. There's a rule you've missed. Paul says, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ becomes of no effect to you. Why would you want to burden yourselves again? Keep reading. Verse 3, again, I declare that every man who lets himself be circumcised, he is obligated to obey the whole law. I love the logic of the Bible. For those of you who put so much stock in the rules and somehow think you're better than someone else because of the rules by which you live, I'd like to have a conversation with you because I bet you I could bring up several rules in the Bible that you don't live by. I'll bet I could come up with a bunch. If we went to the book of Leviticus, I could knock your socks off because I guarantee you you don't live by those rules. Oh, well, there are exceptions to those Old Testament rules. Really, who gets to say so? You? Are you the one that gets to decide? That's why the book's not about rules or behavior. And Paul didn't want it to be about circumcision. Verse 4, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away, not from God's love, but his grace. Skip down and look at verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Same thing he said in Romans chapter 6. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Why do we insist upon complicating our freedom in the church? 
Very quickly, what are the distinguishing marks of the person who gets grace? Here they are, one after another. First of all, they're intentional because their faith walk is simple. They're focused. They know where they're going. They know what they're trying to do. They're living on purpose. Secondly, they're humble. This person knows because of grace that anything righteous about them is all about God and not themselves. They're single-minded. Their behaviors are acts of worship. They're not more righteousness. They're straightforward. There is but one rule, and they know it, and it's love. Love God and love others. And finally, and most, I suppose, appropriately, they're gracious. They're gracious. They know God has demonstrated grace to them. They, in turn, demonstrate grace to others. The old songwriter that wrote the old hymn, He Giveth More Grace, man, that guy knew what he was talking about. He wrote, His love has no limits and His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. I wonder... What if we gave more grace to others? I wonder what more grace would do for this community. I wonder what grace would do for your family and your home. I wonder what more grace would do for this church. You see, at this church, it's not about more rules. It's about celebrating the freedom of more grace. Because church, if you don't know grace, you don't know Jack. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of walking in your grace and the freedom that comes with it. Thank you for the change in our intention when we embraced authentic faith in your risen son, Jesus Christ. May we keep that faith walk simple. Father, don't allow us to allow others to compound the shame and lay on the guilt simply because we don't live by the right rules or with the right strategy. Keep us sincere, humble, authentic, straightforward, and focused. And Father, help us be gracious to others, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you go make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.